All right, everybody. Hello. How are you all? I know you're in a good mood because the sun is shining. Um, okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, okay, <clears throat> so some announcements tonight. Lauren, what announcements do we have? Third scrutiny. And, and maybe we should just do a reminder of <clears throat> who's getting what when. So there's three groups of people, or probably four in this room. There's people who are awkward. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but it's going to be that kind of night, by the way. Confession retreat, confirmation mass. Cool. Cool. Yep, we'll go through that. So, so if you're an RCIA, there's kind of three types of people here. There's catechumens, right? What does it mean to be a catechumen? Right, so that means you have never been baptized. Or you were baptized in a, in a faith that the church doesn't recognize that baptism. Um, and so it's not to pick on those people. If you want to have questions about that, we can talk about it. But like if you were baptized in the Mormon church or like the um, Jehovah's Witnesses church, those would be two examples. But other than that, it's pretty darn rare. Almost everything else we consider perfectly valid baptism. A candidate means you were baptized but not Catholic. Okay? So if you were baptized Presbyterian or Evangelical or Lutheran or Southern Baptist or Anglican or Methodist or whatever it was, that means you're a candidate. And then there's what we would just call confirmandi. And that means that you were baptized as a Catholic but you just, you were never confirmed to receive First Communion. Okay, does anybody have questions and are like, feel like they don't fit one of these categories? Or there's those of you who are priests. Okay. There you go. If you're a priest and you're at RCIA, you're really going to freak me out. Any questions about those kind of categories? Yeah. Adam. Yep. Yeah, still, it would still be confirmandi. If you were baptized Catholic, you received First Communion, but you weren't confirmed, that would still be confirmandi. So, so here's what's going to happen. is come, We're getting close, folks. Freaks me out because I want you to be fully like, you know, Christianity is not about knowing everything. That's not what it's about, but I want you to know everything, right? 
Um, so these two groups, candidates and catechumens, right? You're going to be, if, you're, if you've decided you're going to become Catholic, you're going to come into the Catholic Church at the Easter Vigil. Right, that's Saturday night. It's the first Easter Mass. So Easter Sunday is April 21st. So Saturday night, in the night, is the Easter Vigil, and that's the first liturgy of Easter. It's the most important Mass of the entire year for the Catholic Church. It is the most important moment of the entire year. That's the Mass where you'll be received into the Catholic Church. And just to warn you, it's going to be at least three hours. And I am not kidding. Um, it will be three hours long. And it will be awesome. It actually flies by. Um, normally in Mass, we have three readings. At the Easter Vigil, we're going to have uh, seven, I think. So there, there's a lot of readings there's other things that happen, like baptism and confirmation. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, now, if you're a confirmandi, here's something that I'm going to kind of pat myself on the back a little bit here. Um, if you're confirmandi, normally what we used to do is we used to have you confirmed with the kids. And it was just awkward because it was like three people from RCIA in their like 30s and like 60 10-year-olds. And the bishop's like, hey, kids! <laughs> and you're like, what am I doing here? So anyway, what we're going to do, if, if you're in this group and you need to be confirmed, you're going to be confirmed and receive First Communion on Palm Sunday. And I, got, I had to get specific permission from the bishop to do this. And so you'll be confirmed by me on Palm Sunday. And you'll receive your first communion at that Mass, if you haven't received it already. Here at Lourdes. Yep. And the, cool, the really cool thing about that is that means that for the rest of Holy Week, you can go through all the liturgies of Holy Week as a fully initiated Catholic. And that would be really powerful. That would be really beautiful. Um, so we're coming up on... Holy Week, and what is Holy Week? So, so the last week of Jesus' life, right? The last week of his life, he rode in to Jerusalem, and he rides in, and he's on a donkey, and the crowd acclaims him as king, and they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Um. That day that Jesus, that Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem is what we call Palm Sunday. And the reason for that is that the crowds, as he entered Jerusalem, they took like um, kind of the, the branches from palm trees, the palms. <clears throat> That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> and they laid him down on the road and it's a symbol of kingship in Judaism, which goes back to the second book of Maccabees, and there's other references, but it's a symbol of kingship. And so Jesus, that Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem. So we celebrate that. We reenact it, and it begins the week of our redemption. Um, Tuesday of that week, 
is, it's not something we do together, but if you wanted to come to this, it would be kind of cool. There is what's called the Chrism Mass. So Chrism is the same word. I think there's an H, C-H-R. The Chrism Mass is the same Greek word where we get Christian and Christ. Christos in Greek means an anointed one. And every Tuesday of Holy Week, the bishop at the cathedral, he consecrates all of the holy oil that will be used throughout the entire coming year in all of the churches of the diocese. So at that Mass, if you're coming into the church at the Easter Vigil, at this Mass, the bishop will bless the oil that will anoint you when you're baptized and confirmed. So that's kind of cool. Um, if you want to go to that, it is, let's see, do I have my phone? It's hard for most people to make because it's during the day. Um, it's at 11 a.m. April 16th. 16th of April, and it's at the cathedral downtown. So if you went to the if you went to the right of election, it's in that same church, the cathedral. Wednesday, nothing happened during Holy Week. It's only anything we know about, so nothing happens. Thursday is the Mass of the Lord's Supper. So Holy Thursday of that week, that was the week that Jesus instituted the Eucharist and the priesthood. Um, and so we have the Mass of the Lord's Supper, I think it's at 7. Let's see. Don't you love that calendars are on phones now? I'm like, how did we live before? Yep, so 7 p.m. is the Mass of the Lord's Supper. And again, I would just encourage you, Holy Week, like, guys, this is everything you can possibly make. You really should. It's super powerful. It's super prayerful. At this Mass, we wash feet just like Jesus did at the Last Supper. It's very powerful. It's very beautiful. 7 p.m., it will be packed. Because like on Sundays at Lourdes, we have four Masses. And we have four Masses worth of people trying to get to one. It'll be packed, but it's worth it. It's beautiful. It's going to be awesome. Then Friday, the day that Jesus died, Good Friday... We'll have, we don't have Mass on Good Friday. It's the only day of the year we really never have, you never have Mass. But you have a liturgy of the Passion, it's called, and that's at 3 p.m. Why is it at 3? And he goes, bam. I knew you listened. So Jesus died at 3 p.m. on the cross. So at 3 o'clock, we'll have the liturgy of the Lord's Passion. It's very powerful. It's not a Mass. It has parts of the Mass, um, but it's, it's a little different. But that's just beautiful. Um, and then Holy Saturday, the day Jesus was dead in the tomb, we're going to have a practice for the Easter Vigil. What, do you know what time that's at, Lauren? 9 a.m. So 9 a.m., we'll have practice um, and if you're going to be baptized or confirmed that night, if you're coming into the Catholic Church that night, we need you to be at this. 
uh, so plan on that, be on the church at 9 a.m. Um, and then the Easter vigil starts at 8 p.m. And we're going to ask you to be there. What time do you want to say, Lauren? I want to say 7.30, but then I'm like, you're going to be 15 minutes late if I say 7.30, and I don't want you there at 7.45. That's too close. 7.15. Teresa, yeah. Sponsors, if they want to come to this, um, it's helpful. They don't have to, but it's helpful. So let's say 7.15 p.m., and we'll brief you on more of what you need for the Easter Vigil. If you're being baptized, right, you're going to get wet. And so, um, I don't know. Get, don't wear a bathing suit, but I had one little kid who wore a bathing suit. That was kind of fun. Um, You can do full immersion or you can do it over the head. I'm not sure which way we're going to do. We'll probably do it over the head this year here. Oh, yeah. Can I tell you one story about that? This, this same kid who wore a swimsuit, which because he was like seven. So his mom had him, he had a swimsuit and he had a shirt that said Baptism Day on it. It was pretty cute. But at practice, his name's Elijah. It was my first year at Lourdes. And I was like, Elijah, do you, and we practiced. I was like, do you want me to dunk you face forward or face back? And he was like, face forward. I was like, okay. So of course, me being me, I got it wrong. And the other thing that happened is that we always, if when we do full immersion, we heat the water up so it's like, not warm, but it's lukewarm. And so Elijah gets in and the water was ice cold because we forgot to turn the heater on. So Elijah's like on his knees. I'm like, you ready? And he's like, he's like, yeah. And I'm like, and I'm like, I take him and I go the wrong way. I go backwards. I'm like, I baptize you in the name of the Father. <laughs> and I dunk him and he comes up and my microphone was still on. And he goes, <gasps> and I was like, are you okay? He goes, the water's cold and the sun <laughs> and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> And like, and he came up and he didn't know what to do. And he was like, and his mom was so great because she was like, if I don't make him happy, he's going to cry. She was like, that was awesome. And he was like. <laughs> so, <laughs> that could happen to you at the Easter vigil. Um, okay, any questions? Yeah, Craig. <laughs> After, no, not before, after. We'll go through all that, but you're going to change. If you're, if you're getting baptized, right, we're going to change clothes after that. And then you're going to want to wear white because white is the symbol of the promise of eternal life and of new life in Christ. So something other than white before, and then you change to white after you're baptized. Yes. There is, and I forget it, for the, actually, no, there's not. Yeah, so we'll, that's a good point. When's the, re, the retreat's on this sheet? So there's going to be a confession retreat, April 13th. So confession retreat, 13th of April, 
9 a.m. So we'll talk about it there. That's a good place to talk about that. It's very easy. If you're getting confirmed, it's really easy. Like, what's going to happen is that your sponsor is going to stand behind you with their hand on your shoulder, and I'm going to say, um, you're going to you're going to your sponsor is going to tell me what saint you've chosen for your confirmation sponsor, and you're like, I choose Mother Teresa, and so I'm like, Saint Teresa of Calcutta. And I'll take oil, put it on your head, and I'll say, be sealed. I won't do it to myself. Be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'll do it to you. Be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Your big line is, amen. (laughs) I promise you, most of you will forget that. Because it always happens. Because I'll do that, and then you'll just stare at me. It happens every year, and I'm like, you're like, amen. And then we'll shake hands. I'll say, peace be with you. And you'll stare at me. So it's not that hard. It'll be, it'll be pretty easy, but we'll go through that. Okay, any last questions about this? Yes. Yes. And what you'll do is you'll just, whoever's first, you'll walk up with them. And whoever's second, you'll go back in line and be with them for theirs. Yes, so if you're getting baptized, so this is a confession retreat. So if you're, if you're getting baptized, everyone's going to hate you because you get a get out of jail free card. Because baptism washes away all of your sins. And so everyone's like, why did I get baptized? It's actually really beautiful though. So anyway, if you've already been ba- or if you haven't been baptized, you don't need to be at this. If you want to, you're welcome to come to learn about it, but we're not going to have you go to confession because you can't until you're baptized. Um, but if, if you have already been baptized, we're going to have you go back as far as you can think of, and not with like, do you remember the Goonies when they catch Chunk? Right, remember that? And they capture him, and he's like, tell me everything. And he's like... In third grade, I pushed my sister down the stairs and I blamed it on the dog, you know? It's not that. It's like, what are the ways that you've really sinned against God in your life? And not like little tiny things, but what are the things that are like, I live for myself. I just, which all of us have, right? We've all lived kind of, and I, I certainly have. I have lived for myself, Lord, and I haven't lived for you. Um, and kind of bigger sins. <laughs> Okay. It's been one of those days. Okay, any other questions? What if somebody's done something? Yeah, so what if someone's done something really, really awful? The good news of Christianity is that there is no sin bigger than the blood of Jesus Christ. I love that. Now, the church is going to ask. Some people have a problem because they say they just go to confession or baptism and everything's just good. Well, the church says that once you have been forgiven, you're called to make things right as best as you can. You're called to be a person of uh, redemption, a person who spreads the gospel, who helps set things the way they should be. But your forgiveness isn't contingent upon that. And we'll get to that maybe tonight. Probably not. 
right? We know how that goes. Okay, anybody else? So first reconciliation, here's some more good news for you, is that we'll have multiple priests there. And so every year the same thing happens in our CIA. And what happens is some people are like, I will only go to FB for confession. And other people are like, I would never go to FB for confession unless I was literally dying. And then I'd have to think about it. <laughs> and either way is fine. Either way is fine. And so what we do is we're going to invite, I forget, two or three other priests to come. And the key is not who you go to because it's not about the priest. It's about God. And, but whatever makes you comfortable. So that you can go in and you can say, and you can lay it all on the table and you say, here's everything, that's, here's everything I want to say to God. And you will feel, I can just, everybody's scared, everybody's nervous before they do this. You will feel better than you have ever felt in your life. You will feel absolutely amazing. I love confession. In fact, I need to go right now. Okay, other questions? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, so catechumens who need to be baptized and candidates who are baptized in a non-Catholic church. They all come in, and what you'll, you'll receive at the Easter Vigil, and it's proper, right? The Easter Vigil is the first moment of the resurrection, the moment that redeemed us. That's the moment you will be baptized. You will receive confirmation, which is this fullness of God's spirit sacramentally, and Eucharist, which is full communion with Jesus and with his church. And so it's a, the perfect moment for all that to happen because it's also the moment we were redeemed. And if you have already been baptized, what I call it the sacramental slam, you know, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, you will get whichever ones you need. We don't do any weddings at the Easter Vigil, though. So, I know. Okay, any last questions? Okay, so let's go back. So now we're in morality. Um, so here we go. This is what you've all been waiting for since like class number one. At least some of you, probably. So <clears throat> we're in the moral pillar, and I just want to review really quickly most of the controversial things that we're going to encounter in morality the root issue is one issue. Just one. And if you get that root issue, all the big controversial things of today make sense. But if you miss that, they're all different. Um, okay, but before we even get to that, from last class, what is the purpose? When you ask the Catholic Church and all of Western civilization and most of people in all of world history, if you ask them, why should I live a moral life, what's their answer? Yeah, the answer is happiness. And we've lost that today, right? 
I, I like to, th- I think today in America, a lot of us are kind of spiritually, and in terms of our maturity, we're adolescents. And what we tend to see is we see authority as something that just limits our freedom and makes our life miserable. Right, and so every rule, you, when you were a teenager and your parents were like, one of my favorites uh, was um, some of my friends were going up to the mountains for the weekend when I was in high school. And I was really excited about this because there were a bunch of girls going and there was a hot tub. And so I asked my mom, I'm like, hey, can I go to the, can I go to the mountains with like the Rigners? And she's like, who's going? I'm like, oh, you know, just some of the friends, you know. <laughs> and moms are like, they're very good at probing. They're like, uh, what's going on, Brian, right? And my mom eventually got to the whole truth. And she's like, and my, actually my household didn't have that many rules, but my mom was like, oh yeah, uh, no. And at the time, right, you're like, why do you hate me, right? (laughs) Why do you want me to be miserable, right? (laughs) I'll never be happy. No girl will ever like me because my parents are so restrictive. And it's been proven true through my priesthood and blah, 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 (laughs) right? Um, And you think that, I need a beer. (laughs) But... (laughs) But you think that, right? You're growing up and you're like, and a lot of people never grow out of that. But we all kind of know this, don't we? Is that ultimately, if you just follow what you want to do, this is actually what will happen. If you just follow your passions, if you just do what you want to do all the time, you're actually going to end up in a place that's not happy. You're going to end up in a place that's not good for you. And most of civilization, one of the the critical kind of dogmas of civilization is that you, to find lasting, real happiness, on some level, you must deny yourself. Right? You have to learn to say no to yourself. Um. Okay, so freedom's about, or not freedom, uh, morality is about happiness. That's, that's really what the church believes. Okay, where next? So, let's really briefly review. Remember last time, we finished with Aristotle versus who? Nietzsche. And these are the two, these are the two voices that rule basically moral discourse in the modern world. Most people, and not, it's not to pick on them, it's not necessarily their fault, but most of us just haven't read either of them, right? Um, my, one of my philosophy professors in seminary, Sister Prudence, she, she always referred to him as Nietzsche, it always freaked me out. It's like, who the hell is Nietzsche? Um, but <laughs> what's the big difference between these two? How would you describe the difference? Say that again, Phyllis. 
I wouldn't put it, yeah, that is true. One believes in morality and one doesn't, but why? Okay, but why does one think morality matters and the other one doesn't? No, go ahead. Okay, that's true. Okay, Nietzsche does not think that morality leads to happiness, and there's something underneath that. Why does Nietzsche not believe that morality can lead to happiness? Okay, there's no right and wrong. That's right. It should be what? Okay. Okay, good. Here's the one thing. Morality should not be imposed on anyone, and Nietzsche does say that. But there's something beneath that, and maybe I should have said the Enlightenment thinkers before Nietzsche. The, The big question is this. Does reality matter? That's, if you understand this question, and this is an oversimplification in some ways, but kind of not. It, this, all of the, the controversial questions we're going to get to, that's the real question. You could also say it is reality binding. Aristotle says what? Good. He says yes. And Nietzsche says no. So what happened, right, and, and I don't want to write all this up, but <clears throat> traditionally when you ask Western civilization, and again, basically all of human civilization, although it's not completely universal, but pretty close. Um, when you ask history and you say, why should I live a moral life? The two answers are, one, you'll be happy, but what that means, what they mean by happiness is they mean human nature. And let me, let me explain that really quickly. When you're a teenager, one more story, when I was a senior in high school, uh, two of my close friends and I, actually three of them, we took a road trip around Colorado before college. And it was kind of like, we didn't do anything really that immoral or anything, but we were just having fun and doing what we wanted to do. And one night we ended up in Aspen and we were camping up on, um, what's that pass outside of Aspen? Independence Pass, yep. And we went into Aspen for dinner and everything was too expensive because we were high school seniors. And so I literally went to Safeway or whatever grocery store it was and I bought a half gallon of ice cream and ate the whole thing. It was awesome, (laughs) right? And what we mean by happiness, right? In that moment, I was like, was I happy eating that ice cream? I was happy, right? I was really happy. But Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic Church, and again, like the great tradition of human history, what they mean by this, there's actually a better word. The word they use in Greek that Aristotle uses is you. Very good. Eudaimonia, or I always say eudaimonia, but I, whatever. 
You got to, I don't know where the emphasis falls. Um, eudaimonia or eudaimonia, however you want to say it, I don't know. But that word, it, there's another word in Greek for happy, probably agathos would be one. If you ever meet a girl named Agatha, it means good or happy. Um, in Latin, it's Felix or Felix. But anyway, <laughs> talk about a nerd. Um, eudaimonia does not mean I'm happy in this moment. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean like, you know, man, that was like, that was like awesome ice cream. That's not what that means. What eudaimonia means is someone who is flourishing. Right, so, so Aristotle makes no promises, nor does St. Thomas Aquinas, nor does the Catholic Church, that if you follow human nature, that every moment you're going to be happy. Right? Like, have you ever met someone who's like always happy? They really freak me out. Right? No, Lauren's not always happy. Trust me. <laughs> you just got thrown under the bus. But, but do you see the point? Like, it doesn't just mean you're like bubblegum happy and you're like, oh my gosh, life is awesome. And people wonder if you're on drugs. That's not eudaimonia. Eudaimonia means you're going to have bad days. Just like anybody else. But someone who is a good person, who lives life the way they're supposed to, you can look at that person and say, they have, they're, they're flourishing. The way that a plant, when a plant is really fully alive, there might be a, a, a drought, and maybe they're not doing as well that day, or the heat might be too much one day. But on the whole, if they're really flourishing, they're following their nature. That's what they mean by happiness. And again, Catholicism and Western civilization up until the Enlightenment said, why should I live a moral life? Because if you do, it doesn't mean, you know, you're going to have bad days. Maybe your boss was mean to you at work. Maybe you got in the wrong lane on I-25. But you're not, your happiness is not based on something outside of you. It's, it's about who you are. Right? And so try to wrap this up because we haven't gotten beyond last class yet. So the two reasons that traditionally you should, you should live a moral life is because you'll be happy, you'll have eudaimonia, and the second reason is because of God, because God commands it. And part of the reason the world became Christian was because, it's not the only reason, but one of them was that Christian, what God said in Christian Revelation lined up with what human reason had taught us was good for human beings. They went hand and it's like, wow, this says the same thing. Okay, so the Enlightenment says, we don't believe in eudaimonia or human nature. And we don't believe in God. And they looked for a reason, why should I live a moral life if there is no God and there is no human nature? Why should I believe in God? And what they did is they failed. If any of you have studied philosophy, the greatest attempt of probably anyone at this was Immanuel Kant. But Kant's moral system fails. 
And at the end of that time, you end up with Friedrich Nietzsche, right, who says, it's all BS. And whenever someone tells you something is morally right, what they're really saying is, I want power. And I want to control everything else. Okay, quick pause. I know that was from last week, but this, I've taught this like hundreds of times, and I know it's probably new for most of you. So questions, if, you, if you're curious about something, probably everybody else is too. Yeah. Why are we using, why Nietzsche? Or I'm sorry, yeah, why Aristotle? Because um, he's the first one to really articulate it in a full way, in, a, in an in-depth way. The, the best articulation of this is St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, Aquinas takes what Aristotle says and he, he completes it. He really fulfills it to its utmost. And the other, so the, so the real reason is because of that. It's because Aristotle is the first one that really says in a very intelligent, articulate way this kind of theory about the world works a certain way. And if we obey that, things go better. And then the other reason is because the, the schema I'm using here, the person who helped me see this the most easily was the guy I mentioned last week, Alistair McIntyre. And this is how McIntyre lays it out. Yeah, I mean, is there a way to help people? I mean, it helps when a culture all believes that. And McIntyre, one of the big points of his book is that it doesn't help, like, like children, if you're educating children how to live good lives, telling them to not lie is fine but it's much better to tell stories. And every culture in history tells stories that help exemplify things. So like one of the things I'll, you'll hear me joke about at mass, it's hard to come up with stories and examples all the time, so pray for me. But like one of the things I love preaching about is the Lion King, right? And the Lion King, right, is a story about, um, loss of identity, right? And so Simba, right, is he, and don't pretend like you don't know it. I know you do. It's so good. Um, Simba, right, he's raised and his parents love him and trust him, and then he starts to believe lies, and then he runs off with Timon and Pumbaa, a.k.a. your college roommates, right? And he runs into the jungle and has fun for a number of years and just pursues himself. And he's like, hey, no worries. Be happy. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I don't want responsibility. I don't want to have to do what's right and true and good. And then, right, and, and the story will teach you more about what it means to live a good life. If you, ever, if you ever told your son or your daughter, you said, hey, you have to remember your family and you're called to live a life of responsibility that cares about other people more than yourself. They'd be like... Yeah, mom, I know. But when they watch The Lion King, The Lion King, you can say, remember how Simba, isn't it awesome when he realizes that his life is better because he's meant to care for his pride? And he goes back to his family. And so <clears throat> Christianity and Western civilization are, this is why Hollywood is so powerful, is that stories matter. That's the best way to, to help people live moral lives is to tell them stories about why truth and goodness matter. Any other questions? Okay, three-minute break. Okay, folks, we ready to start back up? I know the breaks are short in RCIA.
So we need to talk about this word. If you're going to understand Christian morality and traditional morality, you have to understand this word, nature. Now, usually, like, when I first studied philosophy, it's, I would get confused, and I'm like, are we talking about, like, the woods? You know, like, nature, are we going out, and, you know, Father Brian's got his flip-flops and his shirt's untucked, and nature, you know. Um, that's not what we mean. Nature means, is basically how things are. So each thing that exists has what we, what Aristotle would say, and what Thomas Aquinas would say, is that things that exist, they exist a certain way. And we're going to flesh that out. And a corollary to this, an important term, is what we would call natural law. And really, all, all this is, what it means is that there is a law, and I love this word, inscribed into things. So, for instance, let me contrast it with a different kind of law. A different kind of law would be what we would call positivist law. Or you could just say human law. Human law is a law that's kind of made up and imposed on you. Right? So when you're the teenager, your parents say curfew will be at 10 p.m. Right? There, <clears throat> there's nothing inside of you that says 10 o'clock, like there's this natural impulse inside of me that I must be home by 10. Right? There's nothing inside of me that says that. That's a human law. Yeah, I know. Nate, yours is, yeah. I must be tough to be lame. I mean. Um. So natural law, though, means that things are built and they're, they work a certain way. Right? They work a certain way. So the natural, the easiest example of this oftentimes is I like to talk about just plants, right? <clears throat> so you can have, like, let's just say we're going to grow tomatoes. There's a law inscribed into tomato plants, and all that law is is how they work, right? And, and a tomato plant, if you take a tomato plant, and you say, wow, I want to grow the best tomatoes in Colorado. And you take a tomato plant and you put it, you say, you know what? I'm tired of these conventional tomato growing kind of like laws. I'm going to take my tomato plant, I'm going to put it in my closet, and I'm going to feed it with gasoline. Right? If you did that, right, you will have a dead plant. I, didn't, I wish I had a better line, but that's all you got, right? You have a dead plant. And that law, that's not a law that was, and just notice this. The law that what you should give a plant is nutrients, sunshine, and water. 
that law is not something that was like made up by like American farmers. And you could go like appeal and be like, let's change this law so that tomato plants can grow with X, Y, or Z. Right? That law is inscribed into the tomato plant. Does that make sense? Yeah, Nate. Mm-hmm. I see, and I would disagree. Like, you can never contradict the natural law. Like, what, and so if science finds new ways to do that, they're doing one of two things. They're either manipulating that plant so it's no longer the same, the same type of being, or they're finding different ways to still fulfill the natural law. So they might have something I don't even know. I'm not into, you know, botanics enough, agriculture. But, like, but let's say you found something other than water, and they're like, wow, they found out that Gatorade actually helps tomato plants more. Right? That's fine. That doesn't bother the natural law person. It just says that that's still, there's something in there. Right? They're, they're never going to find a plant that thrives in darkness and with gasoline. Right? The, the, there is something, and you can debate where, where's the line, but there, there is a nature. Things thrive under certain conditions, and they don't thrive under others. So the, the Enlightenment specifically denied natural law in humans. It specifically denies that. And so Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Hume and Kant... Kant actually believes a little bit more. He tried to save natural law, but he, he kind of fails at the end of the day. Um, but they don't believe that it's across humans. What, they, what, the, what the Enlightenment tends to say is that all we have are individual human beings, and you and I may look alike, and we may like both be able to understand English, but we're not, there's no such thing as like human nature. All you have are humans. Um, and so it is, it is, there is an irony there where the Enlightenment, right, you get the scientific revolution, you get all these different things that happen. And there is an irony in that, but, they, but the, the Enlightenment was very big on natural law does not apply to humans. Let me make one more example of natural law, and then we're going to apply it to what traditionally we believe about human beings. So, uh, this should be obvious, but let me. Do, but this is just one more thing to kind of help tease this out a little bit. Is like let's use something that's a kind of dumb example. But imagine you're driving on the highway, and you see a car broken down. Smoke's coming out of the hood, and there's someone looking at the engine. And you slow down, and sure enough, it's me. And you love your pastor, and you feel kind of bad for him. And so you're like, okay, I'm going to go help Father Brian. And you pull over, and the engine's smoking, and I say, I've got, and I'm, in one hand I've got um, a canister of oil, and the other hand I've got a jar of mayonnaise. Right? This happens all the time. And you look at me and you say, Father Brian, what are you doing? And, I'm, and I say, you know what? My car broke down, uh, the engine's smoking, and I'm trying to figure out 
you know, if I should put in this oil or the mayonnaise. And you say, <laughs> I knew you were dumb. But, no, but you're like, okay, Father Brian, you got to put the oil in, right? Like, obviously, you put the oil in. And you, you say, cars are made for oil, right? Like, oil, or maybe vice versa. Oil is made for cars. Like, this is how they work, you know? And that, right, that's intrinsic to the argument we're going to get to, is that there's a law, right, that the way cars work is they work with oil. And we're going to get to the way human beings work is with certain basic tenets of morality, but anyway, so you're like, put in the oil, put in the oil. And I'm like, I don't know. Why are you so pushy? So what you do is you go in and you go, hey, there's an owner's manual. And the owner's manual says you should put oil in your car. Now I'm pissed. How dare, how dare those people at Subaru impose their law on me. Now, really quick, and I know this is ridiculous. I know it's a joke, and I know it's a, it's a bit of a character. But I actually really think this is how the world thinks today. The natural law theorists, Christians and others, they say, look, the world obviously works this way. And what people say is they say, how dare you impose your morality on me, which is Nietzsche. And natural law, people who believe in natural law are saying human beings clearly work a certain way that all of us can see. We may, we may not see the, the finer details, but the basic outlines are pretty obvious. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So let's get to that in one second hopefully. So um, eventually, right, that's, that's the argument. Our, and our world today thinks that anytime they hear a law, it's a, and, and that, in that book, if you look at the owner's manual, right, in, the, in this analogy, right, what's going on is you're saying law is just imposed from the outside on top of me. Whereas someone who believes in natural law, like Christians, believe that God inscribed a law into things. And so it's not someone who came up with a rule and imposed it on you. It's actually the way you were created. The way a tomato plant is going to thrive with sunlight and water is a certain way a human being is going to thrive with morality. Okay, so what is, what do we believe about natural law? And here's where we need virtue. Is that if a human person, right, if a, let's say if a plant, when it's thriving, and we can all see that a plant, when it's healthy, produces tomatoes. Right? Christians, Greeks, Romans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, lots of people in world history believe that Humans, there's a certain way a human being should look where they are, it might not be tomatoes, but here's what Aristotle says and where, 
we'll maybe make a distinction with Aquinas. Aristotle would say, tomatoes for us, that's the first time I've ever said that, our tomatoes, right, are virtues. And St. Thomas Aquinas takes that to the next level, and I, I've never taught it this way before, but every year is new. This is what you get. St. Thomas Aquinas would say that ultimately what it is is what we would call beatitude, which basically means heaven. What does that look like? And let's flush this out just a little bit because this is where the rubber hits the road. Um, so virtues are like the tomatoes of a flourishing human being. What are virtues? Anybody know? What's a, what is the definition of virtue? Say again. I hate it when people get the answer right on the first time. I know. Could you say something like wrong first? I am like such a jerk. It is unbelievable. It really is bad. Yeah, virtue is just a good habit. That's all it is. Right? So if I, if I, if I'm usually lying all the time and I'm a perpetual liar, but then one time I tell the truth, I, might, I did the right thing, but I don't have the virtue of truthfulness. A virtue is just a good habit. And so habits, this, if you have a bunch of virtues, let's just say our habits. So, so if a good habit is a virtue, what is a bad virtue or bad habit called? It's a vice. A vice is a bad habit. And traditionally, when you add up all of your virtues and all your vices, Western civilization has a word. If you add all that up, put it together, we call that your character. And here's, and, and I know this, we're, we're covering a lot tonight, and we'll, you know, we're going to spend time fleshing all this out. Why does all this matter? Here's, here's the big thing I want you to get from virtue. What our world says today is that what really matters is your intentions. Your intentions are what matter. If you have good intentions, that's great. And those of you who've done marriage prep with me, I tell all my married prep couples, marriage prep couples, in our culture, if you did a survey of everyone who had committed adultery in the United States and you asked them if they thought that um, chastity and fidelity to your, your spouse was a good thing, I guarantee you close to 100% of them would say it is. Right? Today we're all about values and intentions. Right? This person had a good intention. They have good intentions. Intentions are great. Virtue is the difference between having a good intention and actually being able to do it. So I, I, I've encountered this hundreds of times as a priest. You, you, I do, you meet with these couples and there's been infidelity in their marriage. No one has ever said to me, I'm like, do you, do, did you think committing adultery was okay? No one ever is like, yeah. I mean, what's the big deal? No one ever says that. Every single person knows that was a really bad thing. Every person knows. But virtue 
means that you have the good habit of fidelity. So think of a person who, like, the, the people who are actually good. Right? What does it mean to be a good human being? We use that term all the time. And we say, oh, she's a good gal. He's a good guy. And usually we say that when someone's done something really bad, don't we? It's like, yeah, he cheated on his wife, but he's a good guy. Right? And you're like, what does that mean? <laughs> What does that even mean? Here's what, again, what virtue says is that to be good is about your character. So if I'm, if someone tells the truth once, that's great. But have you ever met someone who never even thinks about telling a lie? They just can't, they just always tell the truth. Did somebody say no? Virtue is about a good habit. So like, so what it means is that we can grow and we can habitually do the right thing. Um, how do we get on all this? Tomatoes. Thank you. <laughs> Habits are tomatoes. So, here's, so maybe here's the best way to say it. Let's just flush this out. Traditionally, Western civilization says there are four key good habits that make a person good. Those four are prudence, temperance, yep, justice, and fortitude. So those are, those are the four virtues that Western civilization has always said. They, we call these the cardinal virtues. Cardinal, does anybody know what cardinal means? Why do we call them the cardinal virtues? Because they were like bishops in the church and they were red. No. Why? Yeah. Very good. Yeah, so cardinal in Latin means hinge. And what, what Western civilization, Aristotle says this, Augustine says this, the Bible says this, uh, Aquinas says this, Augustine, Chrysostom, you name it. What it says is that all other virtues, human virtues, they hinge on those four. So let's just walk through this, and hopefully I can make a little bit of sense by the time we finish tonight. So let's just talk about this. What is prudence? Okay, thinking long, I mean, that's one way to define it. I, I would put it a little differently. Uh, not necessarily consistency. It's wisdom, but it's practical wisdom. And one way to, to understand this is wisdom or, or um, prudence means seeing things right. So have you ever, and the best way to think of this, have you ever met someone who just doesn't read situations well? You're like, I'm looking right at him. Yeah. But I, actually, I think of priests with this. Like there's some priests I know who they just seem to misread situations. 
So like there's someone who comes to them and they just really need to be loved and built up and they're harsh with them. And then there's someone who kind of needs a kick in the pants and they're just like, oh, it's okay. And they, they just tend to misread things. Well, that means they don't have the virtue of prudence. Prudence is seeing things rightly. And if you don't see the world rightly, it's hard to act correctly, right? If you're driving and you have really bad vision, it's hard to, to steer correctly. So you might be a great driver. You know, your skills are amazing. You can do like the handbrake like James Bond or Jason Bourne thing and like spin around and your skills are great. But if you can't see, it makes it really hard to use your skills correctly. Does that make sense? That's prudence. Prudence is seen rightly so you can use everything else in the right way. Yeah, Katie. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Motives are not unimportant. They're just not the only thing. So I kind of sometimes conflate motives and values, things we hold to be important. They're not exactly the same thing, but one of the things I tell people is like, most people I think have the right values. Not always, but generally speaking, people want to be kind not always, but I think they want to, you know? And that's what I'm getting at when people say they don't want to commit adultery. But like one of the things I tell people is like, you know, every married couple who comes to me for marriage prep or engaged couple, no one has ever come to my office and been like, I'm just not sure I want to be a good spouse. But, there are, but our intentions aren't that way. Yeah, I mean, we, we might be selfish, but I think oftentimes our selfishness is a little hidden from us. Maybe not all the time, but a lot. But people have good intentions. But what I tell people in marriage prep is I say, look, the difference between values and virtues is I really value bench pressing 400 pounds. I hold that as a valuable thing. I just can't do it. Right? Like, values or intentions are where you want to go. I want to be a great mom. I want to be a great dad. I want to be a great preacher. But I've never studied theology, and I've never worked on my speaking habits, and I've never had any discipline to get there. Virtue is what gets you there. Okay. So prudence is seeing things right. What's temperance? Moderation, temperance is controlling my good desires. Hear that. This is going to be key for where we're going with morality. It's, it's my good desires. I control them so they don't control me. Right? So beer is a good thing, right? Was it Benjamin Franklin? Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Amen. Right? I love beer. If you love beer so much, right, if you, love it, if you, if you don't control your desire for beer, your good desire for beer it will control you, right? So, so temperance is the virtue whereby my good desires, food and drink, sleep, entertainment, sex, um, comfort, whatever it might be, those are all good things. All of them are good things. But if they control you, you will be miserable. You will be an alcoholic, Right? You will be someone who can't love other people because you're too concerned about your comfort. 
That's temperance. Temperance is the person who says, man, you know what? I love, um, I love entertainment. I love the Broncos. But my love for them doesn't control, that doesn't control me. I control my love for the Broncos. So when my kids need me, I'm able to turn off the television and be with my kids. That's an act of temperance. Okay, justice. What is justice? Okay, it has to do with others. Amy, I'm looking at you. What is justice? Okay. Okay, it's just and true. It's the right result. Aquinas defines justice as treating others as they deserve to be treated. Okay, finally, fortitude. What's fortitude? Or courage is the other word for that. Yeah, but what's, how do you define courage or bravery? I love this definition. I've preached on this before. Courage is, I'm not going to say it. Courage is the willingness to suffer for something good. Right, so the courageous person isn't like the Arnold Schwarzenegger. I shot 80 people today, so I have courage. That's not courage. That's called murder. <laughs> courage is, there's something I'm scared of. I'm scared. The person who is courageous has fear. And he, he or she is scared of something, but they'll, they'll take it on anyways because they love what is good. And they're willing to go through that for what's good. Okay. So here's where we're going to tie as much as we can of this together tonight. So to go back to natural law. What natural law says in the human realm is it says universally, universally, not just for me and not for like this half of the class versus that half. What natural law says is it says that, um, a person will be happy if they have these things and they will have a good life. And if they don't, they will not. So just like a tree or a plant needs sunlight and water to grow, a human being, and we could add to this, right? This is bare bones. We could add to this. The biggest one we actually need to add to this is God. <laughs> but, but, but what we would say is that for a person to live, not a life that where you walk around going, I'm happy all the time, and oh my gosh, like drugs are awesome, right? Not that kind of happiness, but the happiness where you live a fulfilled human life. You're well put together. You are the person that is as a human being should be that person will always have these four things. So think with me and just let me flush this out. What I always tell people in marriage prep is imagine someone who has every blessing in life, but not these four things. So they are extremely attractive. They don't age. They're wealthy. They're famous. What else can we add? Talented. They've got great wind hair, right? 
that's an old story. There's an Air Force cadet. There's this girl who's trying to get like this guy's attention. She's like, what would you say is the most beautiful about me? And he goes, you have great wind hair. And I was like sitting there. I was like, what the hell does that mean? Um, <laughs> but Okay, so, but these four. So imagine that. So they have everything they could ever want. You're famous, you're rich. Everybody looks at you with envy. But you don't see reality correctly. You tend to misread reality. You are a slave to your desires. You don't control your desires, but your desires control you. Right? So you love alcohol, but you love it to the degree that you are an alcoholic. Right? Like sex is a good thing, and you love sex, but you love it way too much to the degree that it controls your life. You don't treat other people as they deserve to be treated. Right? You have the vice of injustice, where other people are not those that you should treat correctly. Other people are means to an end. They're there to serve you and to make you feel good. And you're unwilling to suffer for what is true and good and beautiful. Now, there's an obvious answer to this. Is that person happy? If you're going to, and if, and if you're going to, you can, you know, and always in our CIA, you can always disagree with me, but it's hard to be a Catholic if you don't see this. Western civilization and certainly Christianity says that if you lack all four of those things, this isn't just like a Western thing or a white person thing or a Christian thing. This is all of humanity. If you lack all four of those things, you will not live eudaimonia. And that, and let me finish this last point, that is human nature. Yeah. Uh-huh. Huge differences. Yeah. So we don't value that quite as much. So what's to say for us in Western civilization, like this is the objective truth and it overrides there? Well, and actually, and so, so there are huge differences between Western and Eastern philosophies and the way they see the world. But I would actually argue, and I'm not an expert on Eastern philosophy. I know more than most people, but that's not... Gosh, I'm such an arrogant jerk. Um... <laughs> Most people don't study it too in depth, right? Um, I actually think the East holds this as well. If you study the writings of Buddha, right, like there's going to be some differences, but, you, but you're not generally going to find an endorsement of a life contrary to this. Maybe, but I, yeah, I mean, they, weren't, they certainly would not articulate it the same way, right? But, but I would actually say, with very, very rare exception, all of humanity sees this. They may not have said it in the same way that Aristotle says it or that St. Thomas Aquinas says it, but I don't think there's some remote place in the world where you meet someone who doesn't treat other people well and you say, yeah, that's probably how it should be, right? No one ever says that. No one ever says, and with temperance, right, like... Right, even places like, even in like Woodstock, right? You go to Woodstock and everything's insane and everyone is breaking temperance, right? And they're just pursuing their desires. After a while, you see that like, 
if you just spend your life tripping on drugs, you're going to be, I mean, watch, you ever watch those rockumentaries? This means yes, this means no, or you can just stare at me. I don't really watch them, but one of my staff does. And she's like, all the stories are the same, right? All the rock stories are about temperance, right? They're all the same. Joe Walsh, I did see one on the Eagles. And Joe Walsh, you watch the one on Joe Walsh, and he's like, his whole life, he's like, all I did was pursue sex and drugs and alcohol. That's all I did my whole life. And I was miserable. And then I got sober and I found happiness. And I just don't think that's a random, like, yeah, that's true for 35% of people, but the other people in humanity, I just don't think that's true. One last thing, let's do it the other way around. Take someone who does not have the, the general blessings of life. They're poor. They're not attractive. Remember Happy Gilmore when he says that to uh, Chubbs? It's like awesome. He's like, you were right, I was wrong. You're smart, I'm unintelligent. You're handsome, I am not good looking. <laughs> I love that line. It spells my life. Um, but if you have someone who, who has none of those things, they have a lot of problems in their life, but they have those four, and ask yourself if that's a happy person. And, I, and I can, all I can do is either you agree with this or you don't, but I look at my grandmother, and that is my grandmother, who died five years ago. My grandmother was poor her entire life. From womb to tomb, she was poor. Um, she had 10 kids. Pretty much everything you can imagine could go wrong, and a family did in my grandmother's children. Everything went wrong. Um, you name it, you know, whatever. And so, but my grandmother had all four of these. She was prudent, like, she was a diehard Catholic, but she, like, a lot of her kids, six of the ten fell away from the church. Actually, I think eight. Or maybe seven. It's debatable. Um, but a bunch of her kids fell away from the faith, and Grandma Jane was this diehard Catholic. The greatest day of her life, she would tell you, is the day I was ordained a priest. Um, no pressure, right? <laughs> but my grandmother also knew that what her children didn't need was for her to berate them. She was so good. That was prudence. Her desires, she was willing to sacrifice her desires, right? They, she controlled them. They didn't, she, my grandmother didn't, was not a slave to her desires. Just as she went above and beyond, right? She would do anything for anybody. She had the virtue of justice, right? And she suffered more than anyone. Maybe I've, I mean, I don't know if that's an extreme thing, but it seems like my grandmother suffered more than anyone I've ever met. Um, and she was maybe the happiest person I've ever met in my life. Why? So, so last line, then we'll go to some more questions. Um, and now you all know why the Catholic Church opposes same-sex marriage. No, just kidding. I know that's a big issue. We'll get to that, I promise. Um, <clears throat> last line is this. So St. Augustine says, and usually I have this on a quote sheet, but I ran out of time today. St. Augustine has this wonderful quote that I love at this part of class. And he says, he says, the people of his time, the Romans of his time, were more saddened, and you have to hang with me, I'll repeat it. He says, they are more saddened if their villa is poor than if their life was bad. 
as if it were man's greatest good to possess everything good except himself. As if it were man's greatest good to possess everything good except himself. One more time. So Augustine again, they are more pained if their villa is poor than if their life is bad. As if it were man's greatest good to possess all good things, or to possess everything good except himself. So Augustine's point is this, what he's saying in that quote is he's saying what makes you happy, we all fall for this, so do I. What I always think is going to make me happy, do you guys know I crashed my car, did I tell you that? Yeah, you're like every week. Um, so like, right, the temptation for me right now is like, man, if I got like a cool car, like, man, I would be happy, right? And I was looking at cars with my dad, and like one had a sunroof, and I'm like, ooh, right? Like priest with a sunroof. Like, that's... Like, good wind here, right? And you just think that. And Augustine's point is that we're all tempted to that. We're all tempted to think what really makes us happy is like possessing the right things or having things go well that are outside of us. And Augustine's point is my point tonight, is that what really at the end of the day makes for a good life is not if things go well outside of you, if you own the right things, or if you, you know, people recognize you or whatever, you have money and fame and all those things. What makes for a good life is not what's out here. What makes a person's life good is who they are. What makes a person's life good is who they are. It is not money. It is someone being a person of truthfulness. It's someone being a person of justice, right? It is a person who is a person of chastity. Chastity, right? Remember hinge, one of the hinges, things that hinges off of temperance, is chastity, right? Chastity is the virtue whereby my sexual desires, which are good, right? God gave us sexual desires. They're good things. But if, if you just give in to them all the time, you'll be miserable. They'll control you. They'll make you a slave. So, the, so last, I know I've said it like eight times, but let me just say it one more time. What natural law says, you can debate about what is part of natural law. Like these ones seem pretty, basically all people who believe in natural law believe these four are part of it. You could get into some of the finer points and we will next week. Um, but, right, the natural law claim is that this is true not for Western people in the 20th century or uh, North Africans in the 5th or just for Chinese in the 18th. The natural law claim is that human beings universally, there are things that are true for all of us. And that if you violate all of these things, you, you won't find happiness. But if you pursue them, if you have them, it doesn't matter if you live in the 4th century BC in Peru or in 21st century New York. You'll never find a person in the 4th century BC who is imprudent, intemperate, unjust, and lacks courage that you would say is a thriving 
complete human being. That's the natural law claim. Questions? Yeah, there are people. So what the question is, what if I just want to follow this, but I don't want to follow Christianity and the Catholic Church? There are lots of people who do that. In the modern world, they're called, one, of the, one of the names for those people are called secular humanists. And, and then again, this takes us back to the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was trying to find a way. They, be, they actually believed in these things, but not as part of human nature. So like the Enlightenment, you can feel like, like Hume doesn't want you to lie. Right? And Kant doesn't want you to steal. They, they all know those are good things, but they don't believe that all of us have this shared kind of nature where things work universally for human beings in a broad sense, or they don't work in a broad sense. They don't want to believe that, but they can't find it. So anyway, <coughs> excuse me, secular humanists, you find them all everywhere today. People say it all the time, right? One of the things you hear all the time today is people say, you don't have to be a Christian to be a good person. Now, is that true? How many people say yes? How many people say no? Yeah. No, like, right, the, the Catholic Church would say, you do not have to be a Christian to be a good person. Because God wrote this into our nature. Gandhi knew this, right? Okay, I'm, I'm in danger. of One last question. Anybody else? Yeah, Phyllis. Yeah. Yeah, so the term happiness, and maybe a, a very quick analogy on this is like the word love, right? Like love can be, uh, Mary Beth Bonacci has a great line about this where she says like, you know, we use that word so much anymore, it's almost lost its meaning. We're like, you're on a date and you look into someone's eyes and you're like, I love you. And then like 10 minutes later, you're like, I love pizza, right? And I love gelato, whatever. Um, I love Justin Bieber. Um, but, but with happiness, and this is why it's so important to distinguish between like, I feel good. And for the modern world, I, th I think, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, happiness is a feeling, just like love is. And the big point Aristotle and Aquinas and the great tradition are making, they don't mean that. They are not saying that if you're just and courageous and temperate and prudent, that you'll always feel that way. They're not saying that. What they are saying is that if you have virtue, the word we always would use is, and this is what eudaimonia means, is that you would be a flourishing human being. Right? You would be that, that kind of person that people look at and they say, wow, that person, like, like it's the way I looked at John Paul II. You look at John Paul II, did he have bad days? It's like, of course he did. It's like, oh, hey, by the way, like, the communists now are overtaking a greater part of Poland. He's not like, but I have justice. And so I am so happy right now, right? No, but John Paul II, because he was who he was, 
he was flowering. <laughs> he, was, he was he was a flourishing <laughs> human being. Okay, we will talk more about this next week. And I know you want to get, we will, I promise. And next week what should happen, what really, really should happen is from this foundation, we should be able to talk about controversial topics. So the big ones I know everyone wonders about is we will talk about the sexual ethic or the biggest things people tend to have issues with. But we'll talk about the sexual teachings of the church. Why does Christianity believe you shouldn't have sex before marriage? Um, why... Uh, why are Catholics opposed to uh, same-sex marriage, which we are? We'll talk about why. Uh, why are we against the death penalty? Uh, why are we generally for immigration? You know, we'll, we'll talk about some of these things. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Our Lady of Lords. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Next week, I will probably forget, if anybody remembers, remind me next week that we have to talk about freedom. So if you, if you remember that, remind me to talk about freedom. Okay, see you next week, everybody.